This morning, I uh, want to look at the last part of Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, it is a conversation about uh, husbands and wives. If you actually looked at the whole package passage, uh, you would say, well, it seems that most of it's directed towards husbands, and very little of it is directed towards wives, but I actually think it's directed to both husbands and wives. And I'm simply going to read that passage and then um, move on. Not sure why I have this pen in my hand. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I want to say, even before I start, that that verse... I think holds the key to everything that I'm about to say. And some people will say, well, that verse actually went with the section before, not the section about husbands and wives. I think it is equally applicable, both backwards and forwards, that Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, and as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Which I found interesting kind of phrase. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. These next five verses, I think, are words, I think, are also important when we talk about husbands and wives and marriages. This is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now it's interesting, I think, that he ends with the word respect, and when he started, he used the word submit. Um, those words actually have quite different connotations. Um, you know, it's a section of the Bible. Um, I think that you could say it bristles with controversy and at times even resentment. This passage and other passages that Paul wrote about marriage and uh, Peter also had comments to make about marriage. It's enough ammunition to continually provide fuel for books about marriage um, enough fuel to buy, provide topics for marriage encounter weekends. What does God ask of husbands and wives? If God was to identify an ideal marriage, what would it look like? 
And who would he point to? Paul has a fair amount to say, and, and I want to say that some of it Paul says is God-inspired, and there are other times when Paul speaks about husbands and wives and marriage where Paul admits he is speaking on his own accord. Now, you might say Paul is expressing his own opinion. I think if Paul had his way, all of us would be single. And Paul said if we were single, we could accomplish so much more for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that to men. He says that to women. But Paul is also very, I'm going to say, realistic and practical about how he understands life. He says that a married man thinks about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. He then uses exactly the same language to say a wife is concerned about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. And Paul says that in that context, Husbands and wives and marriages have divided interests. So there's nothing to hinder Paul from just pushing ahead for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, well, if we were all single, if we were all like me, he said, we could accomplish so much. One of the things that I liked about that those verses that Paul used to talk about husbands and wives is that he used exactly the same language for the husband and for the wife. All of this, I think, prevents, uh, presents a rather interesting context in which to understand and, I think, interpret Paul's writing. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. These two verses are repeated by Paul in other letters he wrote to the churches. His choice of words may vary slightly, but the message is, is pretty much similar. The husband is the head. The wife is to submit. Peter tells husbands to love their wives as the weaker vessel. I'm going to say these words and these phrases are loaded they can be assumed to imply strength versus weakness, authority versus submission, even superiority versus inferiority. And I think the danger exists in that kind of language to do a disservice to God's call on our lives as husbands and wives. There are many people who camp out on the extremes of this issue. There are those, and I'll, say, I'll, I'll just say those on the left uh, for no particular reason, who say these verses reflect and apply to the cultural reality that Paul was speaking into. Those people would say society has changed, roles within Families and marriages have changed. So we need to kind of discard 
those verses because they are actually culturally no longer relevant. They might say they, they need to be put aside in the same way we have put aside verses that say it's a shame for a man to have long hair or that a woman must have their head covered. We put those verses away, and some would say some of this conversation that Paul has with husbands and wives, we need to put it away. It's no longer culturally relevant. I do believe there is probably a cultural aspect to what Paul has to say, but I think to disregard everything that he writes is actually to miss the context and the spirit of what Paul has to say. On the other extreme, you will still have those who say that our struggle with this is not a cultural one. They might say the struggle is one of rebellion and stubbornness. Men, you are to lead. Women, you are to Allow your husbands to lead and submit to him. Get your marriage in line with those principles and get on with it. On that end of the spectrum, you will still find those who actually still believe long hair is a shame on a man and that women should still have their heads covered and should be silent within the church. So one side says, you know what, ignore the passages. The other side says, follow them religiously. And I think there's danger at both ends. Those who embrace a literal interpretation may very well put restrictions or expectations on each other that may give the appearance of something ideal but in practice often become restrictive, controlling, and in some cases abusive, even within the context of marriage within the church. And I think both extremes run the risk of missing the spirit that Paul sought to convey. And this morning I want to suggest that between these two extremes lies a sweet spot where even our marriages can give off the fragrance of Jesus. At times uh, within the church and as we read the Bible, we have a tendency to pluck verses out of a broader context, read them as kind of isolated, standalone statements, and then apply a very narrow interpretation to the words that Paul uses. And I think those on either end of the spectrum are guilty of that. One side reacts against a literal meaning. The other other side embraces them literally. And somewhere in the middle, I think, is where truth, peace, harmony, unity, oneness within the context of marriage can be found. We also have a tendency, I think, at times to read these verses and interpret them either intentionally or unintentionally as role definitions. We begin to, in a 
somewhat strange way at times, we begin to stereotype men and women, husbands and wives. And we begin to focus, I think, on differences that are at best subtle and mysterious. And at the end, I think, even Paul admits at the end of this chapter that the husband-wife thing is a mystery he doesn't fully understand. We do say things like, yes, we are of equal value. Before God, we have equal value, equal worth. We are equal heirs to all that the gospel of Jesus Christ has to offer. And then we say, but we serve different functions and have different roles based on gender. Men, husbands are wired like this, so they should do these kind of things. They should engage in those kind of roles. Women are wired like this, so they should engage in these kind of endeavors or in these roles. Um, I think about 20 years ago, there was a book that was written. I think men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh, I have not read that. Even, and that's a secular, I think, version of this, I'll call it a tendency to want to focus on differences I'm not sure that's what the Bible would ask us to do. Many secular psychologists, brain researchers, and relational experts do point to differences in the sexes, but there's increasing debate as to whether these differences are actually physiological in terms of how we are made, or whether they are assumptions and at times stereotypes that have been spoken into the lives of boys and girls, young men, young women, and we have somehow nurtured and maybe exaggerated differences that are at best subtle and they remain somewhat mysterious. I have a little chart. I, I think it's up on the screen. It's not from a Christian source, it's from a, a secular source, and it said this. And uh, take a little bit of time just to look at it. I will just simply say the context is men's first needs, first priorities are listed. On the left, the things women need, or you might say the things wives need, are identified on the right. To me, it, it's an absolutely brilliant example of showing how subtle those differences are or whether they exist at all. If I was to take those things that are listed under women need to receive, flip them over to the men's side, and flip the men's side over to the women's side, I think most of us would say, wow, you know what? I still need that list. There's another chart that um, I think will be up here in a second, and it's, it's maybe language that we hear more often, that men 
are seen as providers and protectors. Women are seen as nurturers or nesters. Men are problem solvers and rational. Women are emotionally intuitive. Men are solitary and competitive. Women are social and collaborative. Someone once said to me not that long ago, the best men can accomplish is what you might call parallel play, (laughs) which is maybe like why we like to play sports together, watch TV together. We're not really interacting. We're just parallel play at an adult level. I don't know if that's true, but I thought it was kind of humorous. Men retreat under stress. Women need to talk when stressed. And there's, like, if you wanted to continue this list, there would be lots of other things that people say about men are like this, women are like that. But I want to admit, when I look at all those lists, and I look at what I might say strong marriages that I observe, it becomes more and more apparent that these kind of statements are broad generalizations that often real life doesn't support that the overlap between those lists at times is so significant that it almost makes that list pointless. And I think within the context of marriage, this list of descriptors is not like men are like this and women are like this, but within a marriage, it is like this. That they overlap. And the strengths that one complement the strengths of the other, or sometimes the strengths of one make up for a weakness in the other. You know, even our education system would have to plead guilty to this kind of thinking, uh, not so much maybe now, but certainly in the past decades, of steering men into certain roles and steering women into other roles And in the last decade, for sure, education systems have been trying to open up the door to things like sciences, engineering, for women, acknowledging that they may have all of those hardwired abilities that we assumed somehow were meant for men. And I think what happens is we have at times... By talking about differences, we have limited people's potential, we have limited people's freedom, and I think about that not only in the education system, but I think also at times perhaps within marriage. Sometimes the creation account is used. The Genesis account in the, in, uh, in the Bible is used as justification for role distinctions, that after the fall, women experienced pain in childbirth, and men found that now all of a sudden, instead of sort of watching over the garden, it became difficult to work the soil. So women should stay home and have babies, and men should go out in the fields and work hard for their families. I think this is kind of a step of flawed logic. There's no question that as a result of sin, that which was once without pain, without struggle, without hardship, now became difficult. 
Sometimes people say, well, Adam was created first, so leadership or authority or even dominance was implied. I'm not sure that that is a valid interpretation or leap. You could easily argue that Adam appeared to be the weaker of the two. Why did he not refuse the offer? Why, when questioned by God, did Adam say, well, it was the wife that you gave me? Why didn't he man up? You couldn't make an argument that Adam was the weaker. But I think all these sorts of extrapolations are at best slightly plausible and at worst totally off base. They may be sweeping generalizations that we make that God never intended. And I think that when God created woman, the motivation of God was for a helper, a partner, someone to share life with. And to me, this speaks of unity, of harmony, of oneness. And that if we want to go back to the Genesis account, when we talk about husbands and wives, we have greater value to think about Adam and Eve before the fall. To imagine what that kind of a relationship would have been. And I think it's this kind of truth that lies in between the two extremes. That there is a sweet spot that God has for Christian marriages. We are still flawed, so it's far from perfect. But I believe there is a harmony, a unity, and a oneness that Paul seeks to speak into marriages. Does the church struggle with this issue? I'm, I'm not sure, maybe a little bit. We do like to separate things. We have men's retreats where men do men things. They do risky things like climbing steep cliffs or traversing wild rapids for no apparent reason. <laughs> Women may do safe and nurturing things. They learn how to prepare healthier meals for your husband that still have a hint of bacon. <laughs> so men are learning to man up. Women are learning how to serve. After all, that's what God called us to do. You know, I, I will admit that even I have very little interest in those retreats. I'm not sure what that says, whether we are rebellious or whether we are confused about our roles. I'm actually convinced that many men and women actually attend those kind of retreats simply as a reason to get away from one, each, one another for a little while, maybe from the stresses of family and all of that, and the activities are pretty much secondary. And I don't want to suggest this morning that differences between men and women do not exist. I think they do, but I think they are subtle. I think they are mysterious. I think they are hard to pin down. Are men hardwired to want to be in charge? to lead, to be at the head. Are women 
motivated by a desire to be cared for. Probably some truth there. If you were to flip those, are women hardwired to want to be in control? Do men want to be cared for? I think we would say, boy, there's truth. No matter which way you flip that. And I think the differences that exist are subtle. They're resistant to rigid role definitions. And this morning I want to suggest that when we read and when we interpret these verses, we read them, number one, within a broader context of what Paul is writing about. And number two, that instead of attaching roles to this language, that we actually see the language as 100% about attitudes of the heart. That the call to submit, the call to love, are not gender-specific, and they are not about roles. They are attitudes of the heart that, Paul says, need to be displayed within the church, within marriages. Submit to one another. Now, if you think, well, that was only for the church. I actually believe Paul would say that is for husbands and wives. Love one another. Make allowance for one another's weaknesses as equal partners and heirs within the family of God, equal partners within marriage. And this attitude of mutual love, mutual submission, while it requires effort and due diligence, has the potential to create something beautiful in the church and something beautiful in our marriages. No question, marriage poses significant challenges. Unlike the people that we gather with on a Sunday morning within the family of God, our husband or our wife is something, someone we live with, we sleep with, we f- try to figure out finances with, we raise children with, we make plans with. You may ask at times within marriages, and I think most marriages do, how can we make this work when we seem to be such different people? One is outgoing. The other kind of prefers the safety of the home. One is frugal to a fault, and the other has holes in their pocket. One sees budgeting as freeing, One sees budgeting as frightening. One partner may be cautious, the other is spontaneous. And I want to say these real and practical differences are not about gender, and they have nothing to do with roles. They are person-specific, and within the context of marriage, they require husbands and wives, wives to talk about it. How do we make this work? to respect one another, to submit to one another, to love one another, to put the needs of the other ahead of our own, to make allowances for our faults, 
Why? For unity, for oneness, for harmony, to build marriages that also speak of the sweet fragrance of Jesus. For those who say, Doug, you are actually ignoring the text. Women are told to submit, men are told to love. You're reading things into these verses that don't exist. I don't think so. I mean, I understand how you could stand up here and actually preach a different kind of message. But if a literal interpretation would mean that husbands do not have to submit to their wives, or that wives are not called to love their husbands, I think Paul would say to us, if you interpret it that way, you've missed the point altogether. I think Paul referenced that kind of logic when he said in a conversation about sin, that he says that where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. And somebody said, oh, so maybe if we sinned more, it would make the grace of God seem even more amazing. And Paul said that is absolutely absurd. To imply that women are not called to love their husbands or that husbands are not called to submit to their wives, I think Paul would say that is equally absurd that you are missing the point. Even though Paul uses what sounds like gender-biased or maybe gender-based language, his comparison when he speaks to men is always about how Jesus gave himself for the church, how Jesus gave up his life for the church. It says Jesus put aside his authority and became a servant to all. That kind of headship, That kind of leadership is a picture of submission. And it is what Paul calls husbands to, even, I think, if you choose to have a literal interpretation. Paul's calling us to marriages characterized by mutual submission and mutual love. It's not about obedience. It's about respecting each other. It's about honoring each other and at times deferring to each other, giving preference to one another out of love. I think it's a sweet picture of what Paul holds up, not only for the church, but for our, mar- for our marriages. I think the best marriages exist not because husbands and wives have managed to hammer out their roles, but because they have learned how to love and submit to one another. And that kind of marriage, I truly believe, brings freedom to both husband and wife. It's possible to have well-defined roles and live completely separate lives. And I want to say, I think we need to put roles on the sideline. We need to put attitudes of the heart into the field of play. That's what Paul wants for his church, God's church. That, I believe, is what Paul wants to see within our marriages. I'd encourage us to step back and see these verses within the broader context of the last chapter, the last several chapters. 
Paul speaks about the church's role in spreading the gospel. And he pleads with the church to be diligent to maintain the unity, the oneness, the bond of peace that we share as a family of God. Paul says that that unity within the church, that sense of oneness within the church, is, a re- is reflected by a willingness to consider each other as more than important than ourselves. Within the church, it's not a gender-specific command that Paul gives. He says it to all of us. It, has, it is gender-neutral, and it has everything to do with the attitude of our heart. And Paul, who is sometimes criticized as seeing women as second-class, is the same Paul who declared that the gospel is actually blind to color, blind to position, blind to gender. The gospel is as available to the slave as it is to the free. Men and women are equally forgiven and equally empowered through the truth of the gospel, that we are equals within the kingdom of God. We are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, equal heirs to everything we have in Christ. And I believe it would be Paul's desire that he said, I see that also between husbands and wives. Paul's attention was never divided. I talked at the beginning that he said, married people, you're going to have divided interests. Some of it will be about the matters of this world and all of that, and we know that all too well. For Paul, everything he's talked about had at its core his passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul would say to the church, our role within Lake Country, our role within this world is to proclaim that same good news. And last week I said he challenges us as individuals to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He begs the church to walk that way. And I think that in the same way Paul would say, My desire is that even your marriages would speak the truth of the gospel into the world in which we live. It's not about hammering out roles, I don't think. It's about nurturing attitudes in our marriages of mutual submission, mutual love, mutual respect. And Paul, I think, would say, live this way for the sake of your marriages, but even more so, live this way for the sake of the gospel. And I would encourage us this morning simply to occasionally pause and give some thought to your marriage. How do you see it? How do you view your own marriage, your partner? Are we at times putting unrealistic expectations on our husbands or wives? Are we seeking at times to restrict one another? Or are we learning to submit to love and work out the differences or challenges that may surface in our marriage in a way that actually reflects the servant heart of God?
And I encourage us just to give some thought to your marriage this week. I encourage you to see them as a sweet partnership ordained by God. And that they, your marriage, also has the potential to be a light in the world for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, there are aspects of your word that are so incredibly clear that there is but one God and we bow before you this morning. That Father, you sent your Son to live, to die for us, to take upon himself the sins of the world, to take upon himself my sins. Father, we hang on to those truths of the gospel, of the resurrection, the ultimate victory that has been won for us. And Father, we hold those dearly, we hold those close to our heart as your children. Father, I just ask that you would help us and encourage us as we work out other areas of life that sometimes don't fall into easy um, distinctions that require us to work with one another, to love one another, to truly put husbands and wives ahead of ourselves. Father, I just pray for our homes in, in Creekside Church. Father, I give thanks for them. Father, I pray that you protect marriages within Creekside Church, that your hand would be on husbands and wives, that, Father, where conversations may be, need, may be needed, that, Father, you would speak that into a husband or into a wife and say we need to talk. Ultimately, God, we know that your desire is absolutely the best for us. The best for our marriages, the best for our husbands, the best for wives, and in that context also the best for our children. So, Father, I just pray this week, speak into our homes. Protect them, I pray. Bless them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.